0: Welcome to Wise at Work, the podcast exploring the intersection of science, culture, and meaning in the workplace. I'm Corey Smith, the CEO of Wisdom Labs, and your host. In this episode, I interview Lori Cameron. Lori Cameron is the author of The Mindful Day, Practical Ways to Find Focus, Calm, and Joy. She is the founder and CEO of Purpose Blue, a consultancy focused on mindfulness-based leadership programs that build resilience, creativity, and engagement. Lori is also a mindfulness teacher with the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, a senior fellow at the Center for the Advancement of Wellbeing, and a guest professor on mindful leadership at the R.H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. And now, my interview with Lori Cameron. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the Wise at Work podcast.
1: Hi, Corey. So good to be here.
0: Yeah, nice to have you here i love love to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Maryland. I fell in love with Four Seasons, mm. just appreciating nature and the cycle of beauty that happens, the springing and blossoming and the falling away.
0: Yeah. And where do you live now?
1: I live there now. Okay. So I did kind of a hero's journey with growing up there, moving out to San Francisco, living here for 12 years and then living in South America and Europe for seven years, and then back to Maryland. So, Okay. Yeah.
0: Are you surrounded with family
1: there? Some family, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah.
0: Tell us a little bit about the work that you do in companies.
1: So what I do for companies is help them understand where they are, where they want to be, and develop the mindsets and behaviors and skills to really embark on a journey that operates at Three different levels the culture level, the team and organization level, and the individual level. So, my background for the last very long time, like more than two decades, is in leadership development and change management, culture change. So, that's really what I do. I help organizations cultivate a roadmap and then bring together programs that help them grow. And in parallel to that journey in leadership development, I was introduced to mindfulness by one of my clients while I was working in Accenture doing this work and started cultivating my own mindfulness skills. So I integrate mindfulness as a key method in how I help organizations grow and flourish.
0: What brought you to this type of work? Is it something that you studied and then went into or is it something else that drew you to it?
1: Well, you know, actually, even in university, University of Maryland, they had a small campus consulting team, believe it or not, called MLDT, Maryland Leadership Development Team. And we were consultants for campus organizations and leadership. And I really got interested in coaching and supporting leaders, even at the university level. And I just continued, I started really studying the psychology of change and communication, the power of language, embodied practices. And so I really just focus my career in that direction.
0: Yeah, so combining the two, the mindfulness and the leadership, and thinking about a mindful leader, what would you say would be some of the attributes of a mindful leader?
1: So it's interesting that you ask that, because I've really surveyed a lot of different models and frameworks for not only leadership development in the last many years, but also mindfulness. And I've worked pretty hard, particularly with my current client, on what would a vision of a mindful leader be? And at Purpose Blue, we've developed a mindful leader model. And there's three components of that, three core competencies. One is being aware, the other is being purposeful, and the third is being connected. Sometimes we use a little bit different language, but essentially it's awareness, purpose, and connection. Sometimes we frame the connection as compassion.
0: Let's talk about that connection part, because there is an idea and a reality in a lot of times where leaders can be kind of lonely, kind of leading and this idea of the lone wolf leader or those sort of things. And yet connection is so important for just even doing their jobs, but also for their well-being. Yeah. And I know we look at this whole growing loneliness, even epidemic that's starting to happen. So how would you think about this idea of leadership and connection and how to cultivate this connection with other people to be even a stronger leader.
1: So I completely agree that there is an epidemic of loneliness. And what I've noticed and observed with my own clients is that as leaders move up the ranks, the loneliness increases. And there's almost a sense when I work with them, I'm also a coach, is that there's a belief that I've got to know it all and I've got to do it all, and I've been elevated to this position, so it's my responsibility. So it gets worse as people get more senior, more experienced. What I notice that is helpful is when I can get folks in a room and we can have real conversations about what it means to be human and what our core needs are, one of which is belonging and affiliation and connection. So we explore that. Piece about the need for belonging. And we also explore how to cultivate belonging and connection. And one way to do that is when we're creating experiential programs where people can share in a safe space, they start to realize that they're not alone, that their colleague who just shared a story and the other person in a small group discussion just shared a story feels very much like what they're wrestling with. And they start to see the common humanity that's present in in leaders and in all of us, that we all have the same core needs and that we can learn mindsets and update beliefs and learn skills, which cut through our tendency to withdraw and isolate when times get tough and to actually move towards one another.
0: Yeah, that sounds great. So many elements of that is just up for me now because part of what we do at Wisdom Labs is these wise at work communities and bringing people together, learning communities. But what I hear you saying is reflected in every one we talk to there is that they can see each other and that they're having a commonality. And so it might be somebody from finance sitting across somebody from marketing that didn't realize that they had an affinity for each other and they're actually dealing with some of the same issues, and they can see each other for the first time. And that connection seems to be so important for people.
1: That's beautiful. I just came from working with one of my main clients, Deloitte, just down the street here. And we've developed over the last four years a really strong community that we call the Mindful Leader Alumni Community. We've got circles of community. We have well-being champions and you know ambassadors. And then this mindful leader community is everyone that has gone through and graduated from our Mindful Leader programs. And amazing things happen because they recognize each other in the programs and these conversations that really open them up and create connection that are not often had. But then we continue to bring together this community virtually and in person. And I know Wisdom Labs is really great at doing that as well. And I think that's really important, that we cultivate and grow community by continually bringing people together.
0: Yeah, that's something that we're on the front edge of learning. We have these communities within companies, and now there's this whole idea of meta-communities. How do these different communities from different places around the globe that are coming together create a meta community. And I'm curious, are you seeing some exploration on that edge of how, say, a group in New York and a group in San Francisco and a group in Bangalore that are leaders are starting to come together and creating a meta culture? Are you seeing any of that sort of thing?
1: So I really like the word meta, Corey, because we teach attention and meta attention. So I love that use of that. I haven't used it with respect to communities, but Indeed, that's what we've built. So we bring together people from across offices and across geographies, across practice units and divisions, and across levels. So everyone's equal. And I think that's very powerful. And we come together in these virtual live video-based practice labs and practice together and share. And that's an ongoing journey. We've been learning together for four years. Now we're in our second year of bringing together leaders across all those organizational units. And what I love seeing emerging is in many established global firms like Deloitte. I'm actually from Accenture. I spent a big part of my career there. There can be traces of hierarchy and connection to teams and divisions because that's very fostered in good ways. And what I love about what's happening in this community is humanity is becoming more the unifying connector versus what team you're on. Right.
0: Yeah. So important for the culture of the overall organization. Yeah. Yeah. So we know that things are getting busier and more uncertain and stress levels are going up in every study that we see year after year. What are you recommending people do when they're looking at work-life balance? What are some of the basic things that people should be thinking about when they are in this question of where is the balance and how do I even start to think about work-life balance?
1: seems to be a core question on people's minds these days. I'm glad you brought it up. And I do in the work with Wisdom Labs on really tackling that inquiry, which can look different for each of us. So I think, first of all, that the idea of balance we have to look at. For me, it's more helpful in my own experience to think about integration and harmony, where things might look different from week to week or month to month or day to day. And so that's kind of one thing, it's just how I'm holding the idea of navigating all the roles I play in the world and the values I have. So I like to help people and teams start with values and what's most important, what matters most, cultivating sort of a North Star inner guidance system. And then we unfold that into purpose and meaning which is actually the name of my company, Purpose Blue, because for me, the purpose and meaning is so important. So we look at purpose and you know what is it we're here to do? And that helps us set boundaries and make decisions on the work area, You know what projects we take on and how broad the scope should be. And when clients or friends or colleagues ask for just another thing to stop and connect with, what is the work I'm here to do? And is this in alignment with that? So to cultivate work-life balance, we need to know what's most important so we know what to say yes to and no to. So the other thing that I look at is where to focus. So sometimes my passion and my intention of serving and helping others actually really throws work-life balance out of whack. And I do a lot of volunteer things because I'm teaching mindfulness. How do we say no to certain populations? As well as paid work, I can find myself wanting to do a cool project, and then feeling like I'm pulled too thin. So the way I focus now is to do less and focus with more intensity. It's really this idea of deep work that moves the needle versus spreading myself really thin, doing a lot of things at 50%. One guy calls it do less, but obsess. So we really get focused. And then this other thing is I don't see so much separation for me with work and life. And I know maybe that's not true for everyone, but I'm in the mindfulness and compassion business and I really enjoy that work. So it brings me a lot of joy and meaning and connection, gratitude and love. And I do that in other roles in my life. So I just kind of see my life is my life and I don't necessarily compartmentalize it. So if we can kind of track, what are the activities that make up a day? And am I engaged with that? Am I using my strengths? Are they aligned to my values? Are they creating meaning and contributing in the world? We can slowly start to steer our paid time to be more in alignment with who we want to be and what we want to do.
0: Yeah, That's great. And I understand you just did an audio book on compassion and cultivating compassion. A lot of us have a big inner critic. We can oftentimes be harder on ourselves than anyone else. What would you say of the role of compassion for ourselves as it relates to the work world and how we show up?
1: Yeah, I've really enjoyed this project of being deep in the science and the variety of practices we can do to cultivate that inner compassion, compassion turned inward. And it's really powerful what I've experienced in my own life and many of my clients have and in the research around the impact of that in the workplace, particularly around motivation and cultivating a growth mindset and taking risk and being innovative. And that might sound counterintuitive, I think what I've seen, what I've heard, and what's emerging is that some people, when they first hear about self-compassion or inner compassion, they think, no way. There's no way I can do that, because I'm balancing a lot, I've got all these balls in the air, and if I start getting sweet on myself, things are gonna drop and fall to the floor. So they worry that inner compassion will make them lose their edge and lose their focus, and that, in fact, it's the harsh inner cattle prod that keeps them going to cross the finish line. But the research from Kristen Neff and Christopher Gammer, and here at the University of Berkeley Greater Good Science Center, and many other places, is that actually cultivating compassion for ourselves, particularly when we're in a moment of failure, or we made a mistake, or we hurt someone, or harm someone, or ourselves, in those moments which we all have, if we can meet that moment with both mindfulness and compassion as two wings, we actually can facilitate a resilient recovery. It's really a way to grow and to be able to take more risk and more innovation and more creative projects.
0: So imagine somebody's listening to this and they say, okay, that sounds good, but I was laying in bed last night and this harsh inner critic was coming at me again about all the things I didn't do and how I messed up this or that. What do you say to someone in that moment? How do they go about this?
1: So one thing that we can do, and I'm really a, an advocate of not silencing the inner critic, not teeming the inner critic. You hear a lot of things like that. I believe in the approach of befriending the inner critic. So when we hear that voice, we can recognize that's part of our evolutionary biology where we've developed ways to protect ourselves. And that inner critic is here to help us stay safe, do a good job, make good friends, you know, do well at work. So if we hold a mindset or attitude that the inner critic is here to help us, we can actually befriend that critic, acknowledge it. That's what mindfulness helps us do is to hear our thoughts. Instead of being overwhelmed and caught up in that dialogue, we can acknowledge it, take a step back, breathe, and say, I hear you. Thank you. I know you're here to help me out, but I got it. You know, I'm okay. So we befriend the inner critic. I almost use a metaphor of saying, hey, you know, I see you and you can jump in the back seat. You can ride along, but I'm in the driver's seat and I'm driving down this road with clarity and compassion.
0: Awesome. I I think that's so important for people just to orient themselves on a real practical thing that comes up a lot for people. Yeah.
1: If I can add one thing to that, that many people do, and that's is they name their inner critic and they actually give it a name and they personify it, which helps Cultivate that witness, that strength in seeing it as, okay, that just stepped in the room. I see you, Joe. I see you, Aunt Ida, whatever you want to name it. And then just befriend it. Thanks. Thanks for looking out for me. And it kind of disarms it.
0: Yeah. So then disarming it one step further, then what is it here to tell you? And how do you cultivate the lesson from after the befriending?
1: So we can use inquiry. Two of the key strategies that I teach in the business world, one is self-observation and the other is self-inquiry. And there are a lot of mindfulness practices to do those. But inquiry is about stopping and pausing and asking. Asking, what are you here to teach me? What seed of truth might be in that statement? What can I learn from that? Is there a pattern here? How can I grow? What might I do differently next time?
0: Perfect. Thank you for that. You've also written a book, which is quite extraordinary. It's The Mindful Day, Practical Ways to Find Focus, Calm, and Joy from Morning to Evening. What can you tell us about that book, and how did that come about?
1: So, yeah, that's been a real joy the last couple of years, just sharing that with different organizations and people. To the surprise of many, when I said the publishers, National Geographic, they wanted to develop a book that is largely based in science. That's sort of their niche, but that addressed mindfulness in a very specific way. So they wanted an ultimate guide for mindfulness for the everyday person. And they didn't want it written from an academic or a monk necessarily. They wanted it from an everyday person who's practicing for a long time, but who is making breakfast for family in the morning and running a company, serving clients and driving a soccer carpool. So they found me and they approached me and said, you know, we've kind of checked you out. And would you be interested in writing this book? And I was really excited to do it. And so the focus of the book is to bring together wisdom teachings, contemplative practices with emotional intelligence and positive psychology and then underpin that with science. So everything in the book is research-based. And then the key thing that National Geographic really helped me with, which I so appreciate, is really, really focusing on crisp, practical strategies. So every chapter, which starts from waking up in the morning, going through your morning, working, there's a third section about play, all the things we do that bring us joy, and then a section on love, which is about relationships, and then we end again with the home. So for all those five sections, we really worked on making every chapter have very practical how-to steps.
0: Oh, that's wonderful.
1: So one of the things that's really important to me to communicate to people is that mindfulness in the workplace is doable. And a lot of people think it's not. Number one, they think that, As individuals, their mind is just too crazy and they've got too much on their plate and they're just not able to do it. So one of the things I focus on is helping them understand that we're all like that. And there are specific strategies and tools and meditations we can do to cultivate more focus and calm and connection from the inside out. So that's part one. The other part that makes mindfulness doable is that we can create routines and processes and systems in how we run our teams, how we run our meetings, how we manage our email, how we create norms in the culture in the workplace that create conditions for us to be present, aware and connected. So there's two levels of cultivating mindfulness in the workplace, inside out as an individual and outside in as a company. And they're both very doable.
0: Thanks so much for being here, Lori.
1: I'm so glad to be here with you, Corey.
0: Hi, it's Corey, co-founder and CEO of Wisdom Labs. At Wisdom Labs, we're helping companies become wiser workplaces, To create this positive impact in organizations, we cultivate change at the level of the individual, team, and company culture. We see businesses as the biggest lever for positive social change at scale. After all, business still holds the most power and influence in our world, and as individuals, company cultures, and entire stakeholder networks become more wise, we all benefit. To learn more about Wisdom Labs, check out wisdomlabs.com. Thanks for listening.